Okay, please open your Bibles to John 6. Hmm. John 6, verse 45. Wait a minute, I thought we were in Exodus. What happened? We're going to tie into Exodus. John 6, verse 45. In the last six weeks, we have seen in the series on Exodus that this series shows a systematic development of the system of faith that we hold. We've seen the manna, representing Christ as the bread from heaven, and Christ as the bread of life. Next we saw that Moses struck the rock, which represented the crucifixion of Christ. Then we saw the battle between Joshua and Amalek, which represents the battle between Christ and Satan, from Pentecost on to the end of the world. Next, we saw the restoration of Moses' wife, representing the restoration of the remnant of national Israel. Then we saw how God announced the proclamation of his covenant. And we saw that this Old Testament covenant could be termed either a covenant or a contract. And we decided it was a contract, not a contract. Finally, we saw how the law of God transforms into the law of Christ and the role of the law for those who are in the covenant of grace. And today we shall see the righteousness of God without the law, for this is the ultimate purpose of God. Now when we speak of the word righteous, we must realize that this this is the same word as just. Thus the righteousness of God as the judge is the same as the justness of God as the judge. Therefore, the act whereby God makes someone righteous is also called the act of justification. We need to be aware that out there in the churches of the world, the great debate is concerning this justification. In other words, the great debate is about how we are saved and made acceptable before God. The Arminian Gospels are twisting the process of justification to suit their own viewpoints. We must be aware what the right way is so that we can recognize what is false. We must know the truth and then believe what the Bible says concerning the doctrines that we hold. That is why the title of this sermon is How Are We Justified? How are we justified? Questions such as these were opened up during the Reformation and the complete answers are still being worked out these days. For we must not totally rely on the answers of the ancients, but we must be teachable by God the Holy Spirit. God says in John 6, verse 45, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Not just the concept, taught by God is what it should be. Right? The teaching is by God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of or from being taught by the Father cometh unto me. Also, when we study this question, how are we justified, the answer is not only found in what the ancients have written, but also what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us now. This may be an insurmountable task for an average person, but we must also remember that God can use humble fishermen and a tax collector and a rebellious zealot and even an obstinate Pharisee 
and us to formulate his plan for the salvation of mankind. And thus, he can use, not just a chemical engineer, but us, for it's not man's intellect that formulates how we're justified, but it's God the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. And so, let's begin with the definition of justification. And you'll want to keep that available because we'll come back to it and refer to it several times. So the top of that outline should stay visible to you. Justification is that act of God's grace whereby he imputes to the sinner who is in himself guilty and condemned but elect in Christ. So he imputes to the sinner the perfect righteousness of God in Christ. Acquits him of all guilt and punishment on the ground of Christ's merits and gives him a right to eternal life. This definition formulated by Herman Hoeksema is acceptable. It harmonizes with the scriptures and is a good starting point for our discussion on justification. And so we want to know what is that act of God's grace? Well, it's an act of God's grace that leads us into the condition of salvation. The cry of the Reformation was in opposition to the salvation plan that was taught by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church said, when you are baptized in water, you are saved. And the sins you commit after you are baptized must be purged in purgatory. But after the printing presses were invented and Bibles were printed and the people in Europe could read themselves what God had written... The people could read that what God said was totally different. And they rebelled against what the Roman church had taught them. And so they rallied around five points opposing the Roman church. These five points, not tulip, these are all all the S's. Sola Scriptura. Do you know that? By the scriptures alone. Sola Cristo, by Christ alone. Solo gracia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. And soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And thus when we are considering the definition of justification... We want to make sure that we remain in harmony with these five banners of the Reformation. For these are not pulled out of thin air. These are conclusions from the Bible. Please turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. The definition of justification that we read contains the verb to impute which is an accounting term, and it means to put on someone's account. There are many things imputed in the Bible. Our sins and the guilt of our sins are imputed to Christ's account. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. The penalty for our sins is imputed to Christ's account. The faith of Christ is imputed to our account. That's how we can be saved by the faith of Christ, not faith in Christ. And thus the word impute means a legal declaration from God. When God imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account, 
we are justified in his sight. Which means that God declares us just and places us in a state of righteousness and sets us forth as righteous by a legal decision. It does not mean that we really are completely righteous, but it is as if God throws over us the robe of Christ's righteousness. And we are totally covered by his robe of righteousness. God says this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for because he hath covered me, or clothed me, with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. And so let's see if we really need to know all about justification. And if we really need to know the difference between justification and sanctification. Please turn to the epistle to the Romans, Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10, and we'll look at the need for justification. And probably call that total depravity here. When we search to formulate the gospel, which means the good news from the Bible, we always have to formulate the bad news first before we can announce any good news. Uh, I heard one time a chapel speaker, Valley Christian, say, I want to tell you guys some good news. We're on an airplane flying along, but I want you to bail out. You know about a bailout? No. Why not? We're flying along. Okay, we just lost an engine. You want a bailout? No, we still have one. Okay, we just lost a second engine. We are going to crash. You want a bailout now? You want to put on that robe of righteousness now? It's not that you have a choice to do that. But the recognition of the state you're in is critical for you to react to it. And again, God's got to use that. The bad news is, bad news is that all of mankind comes into the world inherently evil. This is what Adam's sin has given us as an inheritance. God says about all mankind in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Let me repeat this. Our heart is desperately wicked. God says in Romans 3 verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so if there is no one who is righteous, then there is no one who may enter into heaven, which means that all mankind is on a slippery slide going into hell. If all mankind is unrighteous, then all mankind is wicked. And God says in Psalm 5, verse 5, in Psalm 7, verse 11, and Psalm 11, verse 5, I believe all those are listed for you, yes, that God hates the wicked. And that includes all babies who are called by many people innocent babies. This is what God says, and this is what we must believe, rather than believe what man says. God says that babies are not innocent. God says in Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. 
And so, since this is the condition in which all mankind comes into the world, God says in Romans 3, after verse 10, now 11 and 12, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And by the way, that is repeated two different times in the Psalms. You can dig those up. And so this is the point from which God must begin His plan of salvation. We all were unrighteous before God. Every human being is in need of being made righteous or being justified in God's sight. We all are in need of justification. For if we are not justified, we are still on the way to hell. The unsaved in the church and the heathen out there are both in need of justification. For they must know that anyone who is not justified in God's sight shall suffer condemnation. That's why we must proclaim the gospel into all the world so that all those whom God intended to save will be saved. But God says in 1 John 5, verse 19, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Which means that the whole world is filled with people who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. People who are spiritually dead are unable to do anything that's pleasing to God. They are unable to do anything free from sin. They are unable and unwilling to figure out what God's salvation plan is, even if they read it in the Bible. They are unable and unwilling to come broken before Christ. For in their pride, they will refuse to come and acknowledge that they have been wrong their entire life. And thus, if God wants to save them, God must do all the work. For unsaved man will not lift a finger in this direction. But how does God do this? It's through this legal act. Please turn in your Bible to the epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Now, if you again will look at that definition on the top of the page, the definition of justification, we see there the words, but elect in Christ. In the second line, what does this mean? It means that there are two groups of people in the world. Those who are elect and those who are non-elect. God speaks about them in the epistle to the Ephesians. We read this in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Don't notice you, if you notice, but four times in that passage, 
we read that God has placed us in Christ. First, in the end of verse 3, we read, in Christ. Then next, in the beginning of verse 4, we read, hath chosen us in Him, which is chosen us in Christ. Next, at the end of verse 6, we read, in the Beloved, which means in Christ. And finally, at the beginning of verse 7, we read, in whom, meaning in Christ. How can it be that God has placed us in Christ before the foundation of the world if we did not exist yet? And our souls did not exist yet. And the man, Christ Jesus, did not exist yet. The answer is that at the incarnation in about 6 B.C., God the Son united himself with the human body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But before 6 B.C., God the Son was called Christ, which means the Anointed One. Before the foundation of the world, only the triune God existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And thus the meaning of Ephesians 1 verse 4 is that God the Father placed our names in the mind of God the Son. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. John 6 verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. We know that God the Father placed our names in God the Son from at least two passages where God speaks about this. The first is in Luke 10, verse 20, where the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. However, there's not a book in heaven where your names are written. For heaven did not exist yet before the foundation of the world. But it is God the Son who is in heaven, and our names are written in his mind. Secondly, the Lord said here in this passage, John 6, verse 37, All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. In other words, all those whom the Father has already given me shall be drawn to me, and I will not reject them. And so, what we see in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7, is that God made a legal declaration that he would save all those whose names he has placed in God the Son, so that we should be holy and without blame before him. And that God chose us not because of anything that we would do, but entirely, quote, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what election is. By this legal act of God, he promised to himself with an oath that he would save all his elect children. But God did not make this promise to any of the non-elect who will not get to know the true gospel, nor will they understand who Christ is. And so at the end of time, all those who will be saved are all the elect who were and are in Christ. No one will be forgotten and not one will be added. This is God's plan of salvation. And this is God's plan of justifying those whom he intends to save. The entire Bible testifies to this. All those who are non-elect are so deep in their enmity against God 
They are so deep in their depravity, so deep in their deadness in trespasses and sins, that they cannot arrive at the true gospel. Except if God the Father draws them to Christ. The Lord Jesus said in John 6, jump up to 44, John 6 verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so the rope that ties all these things together begins where God chose us before the foundation of the world. If this beginning point is absent for any person, then there's no salvation. These are not my words. The true God of the Bible spoke these words. And this is what we must believe. And so is there any unrighteousness with God for passing by all the millions who will not be saved? Not at all. God's not doing them any injustice. They were already on the way to hell for the sins they voluntarily commit. It's a miracle of God's kindness and grace that even one of mankind would be saved. Please turn in your Bibles to the first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. And then look again at the definition of justification. We read there, justification is an act of God's grace. What is God's grace? We can check Webster's Dictionary, which states that grace is unmerited favor. Can we merit unmerited favor? Of course not. That's a contradiction in terms. We cannot merit, earn God's grace. We cannot do anything to deserve God's grace. For grace means that it is a gift which is not earned or deserved. It is simply given by God's favor, which he bestows on whom he will, according to the good pleasure of his will, as we've read in Ephesians 1 verse 5. And so let's read again the definition of justification, and then we're going to piece it together. Take three sections of this so that we can better understand it. So I'll leave a few things out. Justification is that act of God's grace whereby he imputes to the sinner the perfect righteousness of God in Christ on the ground of Christ's merits. Look at those last six words again. On the ground of Christ's merits. That refers to the work that Christ did on the cross. First, our sins and their penalties were imputed to Christ's account. Then he paid the penalties. And because he successfully paid the penalties in full, the perfect righteousness of God in Christ was imputed to our account. Now many things took place at the cross. God said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, Paul speaking, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not only was the perfect righteousness of God in Christ imputed to our account, but also the guilt and condemnation for our sins was taken off our account. Let's go back to the complete definition of justification. 
Justification is that act of God's grace whereby he imputes to the sinner, who is in himself guilty and condemned, but elect in Christ, the perfect righteousness of God in Christ, acquits him of all guilt and punishment on the ground of Christ's merit, and gives him a right to eternal life. If we are elect in Christ, if we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world, then Christ has atoned for our sins, according to John 6, verse 37. He has not atoned for the sins of all the people in the world, but only for those who are his elect people, who were given to him by the Father. What has Christ taken off our shoulders by his atonement? He's taken away the guilt and condemnation for our sins. And he has given us the right to inherit eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And you may have noticed that what was taken away are not the sins, but the guilt of sins. This was spoken this way purposefully for the need to harmonize the scriptures. When we study the Bible, we should ask ourselves repeatedly the following six questions. Good journalism questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. This may seem very elementary, but it leads to harmony of the scriptures because we force ourselves to answer these questions with other scriptures in mind. Since we want to know more about justification, let's now apply these questions to the subject of justification. So you get to your outline, what is justification? And you'll see several verses are underlined there. Those are the ones I'll actually take you to. And I'll read to you the other verses. So if you have quick fingers you can get to those other verses as well to be able to see them as well as hear them. Okay, So the underlined ones I'll direct you to, but the other ones you can turn to as well. Right, so I'll give you two references for each of the questions that I've suggested. First question is, what is justification? Please turn in your Bibles to the first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. But while you're looking this up, let me read to you from Titus 3, verse 7. Titus 3, verse 7, where we read that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This verse tells us that we are justified by the grace of Christ, totally as a free gift for the purpose of making us inherit eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So what is justification? It's that gift of new life forever based on God's grace. Then we read in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. And such were some of you. But ye are washed but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 is a list of sins which God does not at all tolerate if we have not repented of them. Therefore, this verse tells the saints that we have been washed and sanctified and justified in the sight of God. 
This is of great consolation to those who have had a sordid past. S-O-R-D-I-D-D, an evil past. But who have now fully embraced the doctrines of the true gospel. And so, what is justification? It's an act of God's grace whereby the sinner is given God's unmerited pardon. Second question is why? Why do we need justification? Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle to Titus. Titus 2, verse 14. While you look this up, let me read to you from Galatians 3, verse 24. There we read, Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so why do we need justification? We need it so that we will be delivered from the law. For the law was our unmerciful husband who actually did his job of leading us to seek for a merciful Savior. The law shows us we are guilty and in need of a Savior. Also we read about the goals of Christ when he purchased us to be his servants in Titus 2 verse 14. There we read, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And so this is why Christ redeemed us. He saved us so that we would serve him and be to him a special people, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The third question is, who is involved in our justification? Please turn to the epistle to the Romans, Romans 3, verse 24. Romans 3, verse 24, and while you're looking that up, I'll read from Isaiah 53, verse 11. Isaiah 53, 11, we had studied quite a bit in previous sermons. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Again, who's involved in our justification? Lord Jesus Christ is. For he suffered both in his human body and in his human soul for our iniquities. And by the knowledge of him shall he justify many. For knowing Christ not just knowing about, knowing Christ is the essence of salvation. We read this similarly in Romans 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, who's involved in our justification? God says it is Christ who justified us freely by His grace. Fourth question is, where are we justified? In our soul? In our body? In both? Please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, verse 24. We have here a passage that is an accurate prophecy of the first coming of Christ. Counting from the command given to Ezra in 458 B.C. to go back and beautify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, 
from that date until the death of Christ in A.D. 33 was exactly 490 years. This prophecy removes all uncertainty whether the death of Christ was in A.D. 33 or A.D. 30. Some theologians argue about that. But we read in Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 sevens, 70 times 7, 490, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That phrase, to finish the transgression, refers to the crucifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to make an end of sins refers to liberating us from the bondage of the law. We have died with Christ and we have died to the law and therefore there is no law and therefore where no law is there is no more transgression. This applies to our soul as well as to our body, for we sin in our body. And if we are not saved, we accumulate those sins in our soul. And thus, when we are justified, we are justified both in our body and in our soul. It doesn't keep us from sinning, but we're still justified. Fifth question is, how are we justified? Please turn in your Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans, Romans 5, verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8. I'm going to read to you from Romans 4, verse 5. So if you just flip back a page, or maybe don't don't even have to change the page. Let me read to you what God says in Romans 4, verse 5. But to him that worketh not, worketh in your own salvation, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God says here that with our imperfect faith, we embrace the Savior and all his attributes as described in the Bible. But this faith was given to us by the grace of God to begin with. This is how we are justified, not by exercising our own faith, but by receiving our faith from God, who gives to us liberally. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, that faith not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8. If you ever have people question whether it's your faith that saves or Christ's faith that, faith, faith that saves, go to Ephesians 2 verse 8. We read in Romans 5 verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't even exist yet. And legally, we were already called sinners. So how were we justified? Christ suffered for our sins and Christ died on behalf of us. And so that leads us to answer the question, when? When did this all happen? 
Please turn a few lines back to Romans 4, verse 25. Romans 4, verse 25. When we search through some notable commentaries, we don't find that anyone dares to stick his neck out on this topic of when we were justified. It's as if they avoid this question with a ten-foot pole. But that's understandable, for there are two dates that qualify. Either it was at the cross, or it was at the time of our regeneration. But both those dates are about 2,000 years apart. But the solution is hidden in this suggested definition of justification. This definition from Herman Hooksema. And it's worthy of consideration. This definition suggests that the wiping away of our sins occurs in two stages. First, the guilt of our sins and the penalty for our sins is done away at the cross. But when we were born into this world, we lived a life in trespass and sin. But then, when we were born again, God speaks in Titus 3, verse 5, Titus 3, verse 5, of the washing of regeneration, which certainly means the washing away of sins. For water baptism does not cause any regeneration. That's simply a work that we do. The Bible tells us that we were and are in Christ if we are among the elect. Therefore, we find many verses in the Bible which tell us that we were crucified with Christ, that we died with Christ, that we were buried with Christ, even though his human soul went to heaven for two days, that we were raised with Christ, that we ascended with Christ when he ascended into heaven 40 days later, and that we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies. If then we were raised with Christ, after he paid the penalty for our sins, we must have been raised with him as he is justified and cleansed from the guilt of our sins, since he paid for them on the cross. Our sins remained for us to perform for about 2,000 years, but they were empty shells with no power to condemn because they'd already been paid, the guilt. Romans 4, verse 25 said, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now the second time in that phrase that we see the word for is the Greek word dia, D-I-A, which most often has been translated by or through or because of, was raised again for, by, or through, or because of our justification. Christ was raised again because of our justification, for he needed to prove to us that his atonement was complete, and that we received the righteousness of Christ when he cried, It is finished! For that was the moment that indeed the guilt of all our sins was paid. Please turn in your Bibles to the Epistle to the Ephesians. This is the last one. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. 
we have already read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 which says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That was addressed last week fairly extensively. But this verse also tells us that we receive the righteousness of God when Christ became the sin offering on behalf of our sins. So we read here in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, that we are in all events together with Christ. God says here, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive, together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Accomplished at the cross. And then when Christ went to heaven. And so let us rejoice in this fact, that from eternity past, God has laid out our path, and has protected us from all things that might hurt us spiritually, so that even at the time of our birth, our sins which were upcoming, were empty shells that held no power to enslave us. For we were already branded to be the servants of God. Now that's good news. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the comfort of your word. Lord, we thank you for the, the explanation of this concept of justification for the definition that as we as we study we see the the completed fact of our justification already in your mind when you put our names in the mind of Christ before the foundation of the world and then the the completed act at the cross and then the impact on us with our own regeneration and when we were born again Lord thank you for uh, the clarity with which your word has this if we will study it and, and do our tasks of uh, diligently digging out the truth and comparing scripture with scripture. Lord, thank you for the comfort, the power, the strength that you've, sh- you've shown. Thank you for your sovereignty, that you are in charge of all. And as we go into this time of year and this period at the end of four years that is always so fraught with, with fear and uh, lack of assurance of what's going to be happening. Lord, we know that you have it all under control and you have already determined what will happen. Lord, help us trust you in that. Lord, bless us until we can come together again and may we continue to read your word on our own and may you be the teacher whenever we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.